difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to the Next Picture Show, Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with Keith Phipps and Genevieve Kosky. On last week's show, we talked about Picnic at Hanging Rock, Peter Weir's Australian New Wave classic about the disappearance of three schoolgirls and a teacher in rural Victoria. This week, we're heading down under again for The Dry, director Robert Connolly's adaptation of Jane Harper's novel both of which were big hits in their native country. The film stars Eric Bana as Aaron Falk, a big city federal agent who returns to his inland hometown of Kiwara for the first time in over 20 years. Aaron has come back to attend the funeral of his former best buddy Luke, who allegedly killed his wife, his oldest child, and himself, sparing only his infant daughter. Luke's parents don't believe their son committed this horrible crime, so they beckon Aaron to stick around and investigate. Aaron does so with great reluctance, we discover, because many in the town believe he was involved in the death of a girl who drowned in the river decades earlier. As these past and present tragedies converge, the tensions play out in a literal and metaphorical tinderbox, as Kiwara has been so damaged by drought that an errant flame could light the whole place up. We'll talk more about this explosive situation after the break. I've heard some stories about me. I've heard some. Wish I knew what you were looking You're reopening the investigation. You think you're gonna get the truth in a town like this? I didn't know what you would find. When you've been lying about something for so long, it becomes second nature. something quite Under the Milky Way tonight. Okay, so The Dry, we, we sort of, again, as I explained in the first episode, saw some good reviews for this film, saw that some had connected it to Picnic at Hanging Rock, and because there <laughs> weren't any other obvious things to, to choose from, uh, <laughs> we, we said, let's, let's go for it. Uh, so did we make a good decision? What did you all think <laughs> of The Dry? I mean, I'm glad I saw the dry, and I mean, I mean, I'm also glad I saw saw Picnic at Hanging Rock. I, I think they're they're both good films, and they certainly have enough in common to uh, fill out an, an episode. But you know, the dry, as we have already said multiple times, is is a very different film. It's a much more straightforward film, but it's also one that I think is is pretty successful uh, with the. Possible exception of the the resolution of the mystery, which we won't dive into immediately in case there are any uh, people uh, who still aren't aware that this is a spoiler podcast and, and want to bail. But um, like, I think the the answer we got to the mystery or answers maybe are, while very sort of straightforward, are also kind of just cliche in mm-hmm. both cases. So that was a, a little disappointing. And I think it didn't maybe stick the landing as, as well as it could have. But, you know, for most of this movie, I was feeling it maybe because I had just recently finished Mayor of Easttown. And this definitely scratched a, a similar itch, not just in the, you know, the the mystery and detective element of it, but the sort of small town, everyone knows each other's business. Uh, you know, everyone's got secrets kind of vibe. It definitely feels like a if you're missing Mayor of Easttown, watch the dry. <laughs> <laughs> kind of recommendation. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's like an, it feels like like a newsletter type of item, right? Yeah, with it, yeah. saying exactly that. But I mean, I enjoyed Eric Bana in this. I I don't know when was the last film I I said that about. Not that I dislike his work. He's just never been memorable for me, and I feel like he anchored this uh, very well. So yeah, I enjoyed the dry. I didn't. I had you know some problems with it, but uh, I I certainly don't regret seeing it. Yeah, I got to throw up a lot of dittos for that, too. I, I was really enjoying it as it's kind of everything you want from a whodunit where it's like the mystery's fine. But what I'm really into is like going to this part of the world I don't otherwise know and meeting the people there. And, and the nice thing about mystery is that you can kind of cut across all different strata of, of, of the town and everything, and which this does really well. And I think Ben is really good. And then the last act was, I guess you got to tie this up somehow, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. Somebody's got to, the whodunit, somebody has to have done it. So we're going to pick, pick somebody almost arbitrarily. I I think I would have, wouldn't have minded that as much as if the, uh, the tie up of the flashback structure wasn't a little like, yeah, I had more problem with that than the present day. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But you know, I'd recommend it. It's it's perfectly solid. I, I, about as good. I like, um, the supporting cast is, is pretty great across the board too. I really like Genevieve o- O'Reilly as as his sort of love interest, uh, sort of uh, you know old friend from the past. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm I think I'm on the same page as both of you. It is you know as we'll discuss in contrast with Picking Hanging Rock, you know a conventional thriller. I mean this is a commercial thriller that that is based on a best selling novel that was a hit in Australia, and it, it feels very much that, and and it functions very well as that. My main problem with the film, I think, is not necessarily the resolution, uh, though that is a problem, but it does lack a certain evocativeness because I think it's, it, you know, it sets itself with this title and with this premise of this drought-ridden town, and, and, that, and that comes up again in a very important plot way at the end, but I almost felt like I would have wanted even more of a feeling for what this town is like. And just, you know, the film had been more relaxed and not as eager to, you know, push us through the paces in terms of being, you know, a thriller. I think it would have been a little bit more successful for me or at least a little bit more memorable. I do wonder a year from now, you know, a few months from now, like, am I going to remember the dry all that vividly? And probably not because it doesn't have those kind of qualities of a movie that kind of sticks to your ribs a little bit more, but it is, you know, certainly a worthwhile, you know, and satisfying and in, in, to a great degree, $7 rental or ticket or whatever, however you want to, you're going to see this movie. First of all, I just want to put out there, I hate the title, The Dry. <laughs> like, I just, I, I don't know why. It just, like, really rubs me the wrong way. But I, I do think, to sort of speak to what you're saying, like, there is a really, there's potential here for a really sort of effective theme with this, you know, drought-ridden community, this farming community that is dying because of the drought. But we get a lot more telling than showing of that. There's one major exception that I do want to call out as a nice little bit of of visual storytelling as far as evoking the sense of place here and what this community is is enduring, uh, which is when Aaron goes to see the site of Luke's death at that point, uh, assumed to be a suicide, and mm-hmm. it's like in the it's a dried out lake bed, and you know it's it's your typical dried out lake bed. But what's uh, arresting about it to me is that the blood is still there, and it's been days, weeks at this point, you know, and it, it no rain has come to wash it away, no no one has come to wash it away because you can't 
spend the water to do it, you know? So just the idea that this sort of literal wound on, on the earth is is just staying there for everyone to see, I think is a, a like I said, a very evocative image. And I, and then the end of the film, the climax of the film, and here's where we're, uh, I'm just going to say that we're going into spoiler territory. The metaphorical tinderbox becomes literal toward the end of the film and the confrontation between Aaron and the the person who done it. There's more potential than, than realization of the dryness <laughs> of, of, of this place there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, I thought it paid off like well enough, you know, there. But I would have liked to have seen, like you said, Scott, the film maybe relax a little in the, the plotting elements and be a little more picnic at Hanging Rock about it and let us just Mm -hmm. sort of experience this landscape and this time in this place. Because I think the flashback structure, which we'll also probably want to get into more, uh, one of the things I noticed about is the first time we go into the flashback, it's to water. We we, we go Mm -hmm. to the river, you know, and it's there's water splashing everywhere. So there and that kind of maintains throughout the movie that whenever we go back into the past, it's very lush and green and there there's water. So Mm -hmm. there's a kind of a visual distinction happening there as well. I give it like a B minus for execution. (laughs) You you know, (laughs) it's 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 there, but it could have done more. Yeah, I appreciate those flashbacks for the exact reason you mentioned though. I mean it doesn't it's not a type of film that lingers too much on this stuff, but all that stuff is present of going back to the past and you're in greenery and there is a river and there is life. You know, there is a love triangle happening or a love, love Quad, uh, rectangle. Quadrangle. <laughs> a love, a rectangle. love parallelogram. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, that, that, that stuff is happening. So there's a lot of heat there. And so that naturally contrasts with the present day action uh you know in a way that's highly effective it's highly effective on a on a visual level and and then it's very nicely managed on a plotting level as well with eric banna's character aaron uh returning to this place that has become hostile to him and also just feels hostile in general it feels like a dead town mm-hmm. <laughs> you know this i mean there's no life they're constantly left. shooting rabbits like <laughs> like i mean I, I i felt like that was like a kind of a, a interesting motif to come back to that you know people are constantly killing nature you know and i mean, obviously ra- rabbits are a nuisance or a pest in this context which is a sort of an extension of the idea that this is a dying landscape the idea yeah. that people are constantly killing the animals that but it's are also, trying it's to survive there. sport too, right? I mean, isn't there a feeling with like, you know, that, that excuse, yeah, that excuse, you know, in the, in the flashbacks when they, when uh, that's the excuse that is made for Aaron's location at the time of the girl's death is that they're out shooting rabbits. And it feels like that's a something in a town like this, that teenage boys with guns might do, you know, for, for, mm-hmm for fun uh, not to get rid of pests but just for sport why, but, why not both why why not have yeah. fun while getting rid of pests i guess is the, is the thinking there yeah. um yeah. i'm kind of with you on the title too genevieve <laughs> so if, 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 if starfire from, from teen titans go is talking about a movie called dry she would refer to it as the dry you know but, um, oh that is a reference for a very uh yeah small, appreciate small it, population but we do appreciate it yes yeah but uh, it is, i i you're right though that the you're both right you're both 
both right, guys. <laughs> We're all uh, right. We're so but, right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not all that poetic of a film. It's it's very well made, but but uh, but yeah, those those flashbacks to uh, the wetness that used to be, contrasting with the dry that's there. I mean, it's <laughs> totally on the nose, but it, it worked for me as well. You know what threw me about this movie though is is when the one character talks about how her mother sang the church song under the Milky Way tonight to her. But these characters are, as we've established, Erica Banna and I are about the, are about the same age, and obviously about equally attractive. And um, <laughs> but but like you know that was a that was a song for when I was in high school. So why was you know I don't know. No, that's perfect. It, their, their ages are perfect for that. If they're our right, age, well, then that's I had that church album when I was sure sure. But 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 why would their why would her mother be singing it to her if it was made for coming out when she was a teenager? Oh. You know that was what was throwing me. Whatever. That's weird. Yeah. I'm not gonna it? get hung up on that. That was nice. That was nice. I, I love. I that love song. hearing that song again, yeah. though. I, was, she you sang know. it beautifully. Mm-hmm. She did. I still love that album. That's a, it's that's, a good album. That's, that album is, is wonderful. Yeah. I listen to it ceaselessly. As a you get that one, you teenager. get you reptile. You get a bunch of there's a bunch yeah. of good songs on that one. Oh, I can. Oh my god, I could like sing like the whole all of reptile. That's not even like <laughs> the main track. That's a lo- lovely album. Anyway, uh, and it was it was kind of neat to see that brought into this context. I really I found myself, you know, drawn more to the drama and the action in the flashbacks than I did to the present day stuff. But, but I think it's all. I mean, they're both compelling, but I like that those relationships uh, and the tension in, in those scenes. And it just it felt like, you know, what evocativeness was in the film was sort of heavily weighted towards those flashbacks. You know, maybe maybe that's just because, you know, that's how memory works. It's a little bit gauzier, a little bit, you know, looser. You're not as in a hurry to kind of get through things as you might be in the present. And so maybe that's a function of that. But um, but I, I, I did find the use of flashbacks to be effective in the convergence of these two deaths uh, or sets of deaths to be um, very well integrated. I mean, it is... I'm sure it was a satisfying read and it feels like a satisfying movie of a satisfying read, even if it isn't, you know, knocking you out in the high art department. I think I was maybe a little more into the current day storyline than the flashback, just because it did give a little more of that, you know, small town drama feel, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly in the character of Grant, I think. Yeah, like the the son of the old man who uh, we find out at the end, uh, (laughs) <laughs> did, did did some stuff um but yes. sort of you know his harassment of of aaron is uh grant's harassment of aaron and, and i guess his dad too is sort of like a, a through line that i don't know i just I, f- I found it really compelling maybe it's because matt nabel who who plays uh grant grant dow is just like very arresting to to look at but i guess i was uh, attracted to the story of people in this town being suspicious of or hateful toward Aaron. I wanted to know more about what that was about. And that's obviously tied to the flashbacks and it kind of comes to, you know, they, they kind of merge uh, at the end in a way that, again, I think is, is pretty satisfying. But I think the the flashbacks initially, uh, you know, in the first half of the film kind of felt maybe a little superfluous to me, mm. like maybe a little bit more about Again, they kind of uh, paid off when they th- when they intersected with the main timeline. So I don't have a problem with them. But just as far as like my experience of the film, I, I kind of I was more drawn to the modern day storyline. It is good to see Eric Bana back in Australia and make in being, I think, a pretty compelling center to this movie. You know, Bana was somebody I had discovered 
before he kind of came to Hollywood in Chopper, which is an astonishing film by Andrew Dominic. Uh, and both of them would go on to make films in America. Uh, uh, Dominic made a couple of very challenging films that I love, uh, one called Killing Them Softly, and the other one was The the Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward, Robert Ford. But I did anticipate Banna being a more electric presence in films that he wound up being. There were plenty of films that he was fine in. He was, I think, well cast in, in Hulk, though that was kind of a doomed project for everyone. But but as somebody who was a psychologically tormented, non-conventional comic book hero, uh, you know, as Ang Lee saw him, that was a fine role for him. But uh, But it was good. But here it was just he does project so much movie star charisma. And I think in a movie like the dry which does feel very commercial having that kind of presence in the in the film is, is very helpful <laughs> you know it, he's but, yeah but it's a very unflashy performance like you know like he's obviously the star you know the movie star in this film but it doesn't feel like he's outshining anyone else in the cast like in as i already you know we've already pointed out to supporting cast members that you know really drew us in and Genevieve O'Reilly and uh, Matt Nabel. So, yeah. you know, I, th- I think it's, it's, it's obvious, it's not quite an ensemble piece. Like he's obviously the, the main protagonist, but to go back to Mare of Easttown c- c- comparison, you know, you have a really kind of rock solid central performance, but it's uh, supported by some really uh, extraordinary in their own right, supporting performances. I think he's also a character who has, gotten has survived by not sticking out i think his, his detective skills are kind of slipping you know slipping around in the background and figuring stuff out even here where he is conspicuously uh, now an outsider but also someone with a history there uh, i think he kind of does his best to kind of uh quietly figure stuff out without raising too much of, of a stink mm-hmm. i mean yeah he has absolutely and, and the townspeople to their to their credit i mean do have plenty of good reason to look at him askance i mean he mm-hmm. he blew town at a point where you know i think people would find that to be the behavior of a guilty person so uh, uh but i think there is something to stars who grow up you know like you know when er- the eric bana of chopper was a, a young actor who is making a name for himself who is hitting you with this extremely visceral performance and I, I and i think it takes a confidence and you see this in mayor of Easttown as well of a well-established actor to just be able to step back to know that you can kind of like quietly carry a film without needing to assert yourself overly much and uh you know that, that's good subtle acting this is the most minor thing like it's not really even a conversation topic but i just want to bring it up because it was something that really kind of tickled me about this film and i think kind of speaks to the the sense of place whether it is this town specifically or australia more generally but the way that they measure time and number of beers uh (laughs) really (laughs) spoke to me like how long was what were you there about two beers (laughs) <laughs> two, two beers long <laughs> it's just a, a, a nice little moment of specificity like like the aforementioned moment about the, the blood on the lake bed you know like these uh just you get these little glimpses of just a really good idea well executed through throughout this film you know yeah it's not necessarily like a grand vision the way something like picnic at hanging rock is but uh lots of good stuff in here from performances on down 
Yeah, and that bar kind of reminded me a little bit of another thing we did on the podcast, uh, The Wicker Man, right? You know, just mm. like that somebody coming in who is not from around there and just like the vibe of the place changes like the atmosphere of it just kind of shifts mm-hmm. um and uh it, yeah so it, it, yeah the film is not without these elements i think maybe where we agree is that if it could just have like drawn all that stuff out a little bit more and you know and when you see a film like picking at hanging rock which is all about suggestion then you kind of like think, God, why can't more movies kind of hmm. just, they don't have to just throw plot out the window. They don't have to be as radical about it as picking a hanging rock, but like finding some little detail to evoke and do kind of interesting things on a filmmaking level. That's what just separates, you know, a solid thriller from a great work of art. I do love that bar though. It's like the least atmospheric mm-hmm. bar you can imagine. It's just <laughs> bar it's like a, slash like, hotel. Yeah. <laughs> slash it gambling is, den. <laughs> it, it almost looks like like, like a, a for an old laundry matter laundry matter something that's been yeah. converted into a bar. It's just very functional. The lighting, even the lighting's too harsh, but it's like the only place to drink in town. It's well thought through. Uh, I'm sure taken from actual model after actual bars in, in mm-hmm. that part of Australia, but uh, it's an evocative detail. Not the dry, not the dry in that place. Very, a lot of, <laughs> lot, nobody is a lot of uh, a lot of people get a little too rowdy in there. It doesn't look like the most friendly place. Would the dry be a good name for a bar? No. Would it be no. a better name for a bar than for a movie? Maybe. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, is it is is it an Australian thing? Is the dry something that maybe? May, maybe you know, maybe, maybe our Australian listeners would go, "Come on, this is like give us give us something." That's what we call yeah. stuff. That we call stuff. It's a great dry. title. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we, we definitely have Australian listeners, so we so please let do. us know if if we're missing something here. We, we had like so much specific feedback about Gallipoli, Gallipoli. and the historical accuracy of it, and, and, and us not screwing it up <laughs> as badly <laughs> as we could have. So so uh, we'll be excited to see if any of our uh, listeners from Australia uh, have. Uh, some things to say about this pairing because I, I you know, Picnic and Hanging Rock is obviously a very important Australian film and the, the drive was a big hit. So I'm sure this is just going to be a massive hit overseas. This, this episode, uh, <laughs> I, I think um, one thing I can before I'll save people trouble and, and it's going to maybe segue us a little bit into connections is, is they are roughly set in roughly the same part of Australia, both yeah, in Victoria, Vic- Victoria, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We hadn't said so, that yet. Only, uh, you know, 120 or so years apart. But yeah, we, know sure. to, we know how to pick them. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk about that, that and more after this break when we explore the connections between Picnic and Hanging Rock and The Dry. Here you go. You haven't changed at all, have you? I've been seeing your face in my dreams for fuck knows how long. Isn't that right, Uncle Mel? Who's here? Why are you back, folk? I thought you got the message. You bring the kid with you? That son of yours, that bloody son, is he back here as well with you? Sit down. He is the son. Just sit down. It's all right. You're going to upset him now. You see, he thinks you're your prick of a father. <laughs> That's okay, Mr. Deacon. Okay, is it? Just like that fork? All okay. Hmm? I never got a chance to say back in the day, but I'm sorry. 
sorry for your loss. I'm sorry about Ali. You f*** off right now. So now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. We're going to start with a point of contrast <laughs> here because they do have a lot in common. But one thing they don't have in common is that one is a mystery film that leaves a lot of questions unanswered. And one is a mystery film that answers questions like people expect. So, uh, Keith, what do you have to say about that? Oh, I think he said it already, I guess, Scott. But anyway, I mean, <laughs> we, if, if you know, it is all about style, though. If, if we watched the film The Dry up to the point where it's supposed to provide the mystery and, and it kind of veers off and, and doesn't, I think we would find that even less satisfying than the maybe like sort of let down of the final act we actually got. Whereas nothing, you know, I, I think, you know, Pitchick and Hanging Rock is really good at suggesting all along that you're not going to get an answer. You're, you're not, nothing's going to untangle this for you because each step of the way is uh, another tangle is, is another complicating detail with this, you know, this being a whodunit, it proceeds, you know, you get your red herrings, you get your setbacks, but there is a sense that ultimately we're headed toward a known destination, which is the solution of, of the mystery. And, you know, and in this case, both the mysteries where, you know, every bit of new bit of information we get in Pitek and Hanging Rock, it makes, it seems to take us further and further away <laughs> from understanding what happened. So I think that, and I do think these films have a lot in common that we'll get into other details beyond the setting, beyond sort of like some really, um, some elements of the plot and, and themes. But that's, that's the main point of contrast to me is, is that these are, these are both mysteries of a sort, but they're they're very different sorts of mysteries. I keep coming back to I mentioned it in the the first half of, of, of this panel. I keep coming back to that opening title card in uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock that you know does seem to lay out facts. You know, like it tells us exactly when this is happening, exactly where this is happening, exactly what happens, and I feel like it kind of puts you in a headspace of thinking like you're going to see the story of of what you're being told happen. And then the film proceeds to, like you said, Keith, just like complicated at every turn. And you you realize, you know, about halfway through that this is, you know, not about answering questions. It's about sort of the the nature of mystery, I guess, or about the the desire for answers. And the inability to get them. And it strikes me that we do have sort of a analogous detective figure in Picnic at Hanging Rock, this this Constable Jones. I think there's a couple of sort of law enforcement types here, but they, they're very ineffective. <laughs> you know, like they really only serve to tell us what we don't know, you know, and it they function exactly the opposite of the way that Eric Bana's character does in the dry. They're not there to provide answers. They're there to remind you that you're not getting answers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you mentioned, of course, the opening titles. You know, I think the film does also close, of course, with some attempt to give us information. I think we criticize that attempt to kind of say, oh, what happened to Mrs. Appleyard and what's the state of this investigation, uh, this mystery when it ends. And I think we had a feeling that it felt kind of imposed upon the movie um, because that's not really in the spirit of the movie to have to answer those questions. But it is, it is an incredible feeling to 
watch these films back to back just to see what goals they have, you know, what kind of experiences they want the audience to have and really know what the difference is between a conventional, if well constructed and not entirely unartful thriller and, you know, something like Picnic and Hanging Rock, which is going to be around and has been around for a long time just because of the, its level of, of audaciousness and artistry. But, you know, the, the thing that I'm end up thinking about is, what does a movie leave you with, you know, I mean, after seeing it, what is the kind of the residue that, that you take with you as a viewer? And I think you do take so much from Picking a Hanging Rock, images, certainly stylistic choices, you know, an experience that feels unique or rare at the very least. And then you also take questions about, you know, practical questions about what actually happened to the characters in the movie. And so that stays with you. I mean, the, the mm-hmm. dry has that immediate feeling of being satisfying because you have these two concurrent mysteries that wrap up and you know what happened in each. You know how the girl died in the flashbacks and you know what happened to the three people who die in uh, the present day stuff. And, and so that's done. And then the movie's done, and you're done with the movie. <laughs> yeah. what, what are you yeah. taking away from it? You're yeah, done. that's a really good point. Um, yeah. So uh, there's no residue. Um, well, there's um, a period instead of the, those ellipses. Exactly right. You exactly know? right. But there are other ways in which these films, you know, share plenty in common, including uh, the great outdoors and the Australian <laughs> wilderness. Uh, <Genevieve. laughs> yeah. Although, actually, I might uh, just re- reject your premise and suggest that this is also maybe a, slightly a, a point of contrast, although it does. T- as we uh, noted before the break, take place. They, they do They're take outside. place. In, in, <laughs> they are both outside and they do take place in the same general uh, part of Australia. But, you know, they also take place more than a, a century apart and, and many sort of man made impositions on the landscape apart. In, in the dry, we are, you know, introduced to this farming community that is dying because of i mean it's i don't think ever, anyone ever utters the phrase climate change but i think it's certainly there mm-hmm. to infer and obviously with the terrible fires in australia a year or so ago you know it's very kind of front of mind what uh you know how this landscape is being sort of reshaped and in many ways decimated by climate change and i think that the dry just kind of picks up those ideas and holds them throughout the film. You know, Picnic at Hanging Rock, we're kind of engaging with a more a more primal era of the continent in which order was, you know, kind of being imposed on it by the British and by this, you know, sort of we're kind of seeing the beginning of what the dry feels like the end of, you know, as far as the uh the encroachment of civilization on on this wilderness. So that kind of stood out to me as a point of contrast. But these films also both kind of share a sort of stylistic eye toward big vistas and big skies and, you know, that sort of and the affirmation like lushness of the the dries flashbacks kind of feel a little similar to moments in Picnic at Hanging Rock. But um you know, Picnic and Hanging Rock feels a lot more wild. You know, the wilderness feels more wild, whereas in the dry, it feels like it is a place that is kind of shriveling up. <laughs> you know, it's lost its wildness. It's been stripped of it in a lot of ways. 
it's it's life and death <laughs> you know it's like it's, yeah. it's, this is a, it's totally. a place um Ooh, uh, that's good that's good thematic uh, connections <laughs> there scott <laughs> yeah i mean it is it is uh, uh that is the difference I also just wanted to maybe use this as an opportunity to bring up a, a quick detail in uh, in Picnic at Hanging Rock that I don't think we, we brought up yet, which is the the brief but I think notable uh, presence of an Aboriginal tracker when they yes. are, are, are searching for the girls, and I think there's a, a reference to him him later, but you know, otherwise not much time is spent on it. But, you know, I think there's sort of an idea percolating throughout the film, in addition to sort of the themes of, you know, repressed sexuality and, you know, uh, emerging into womanhood and all this other stuff that The Rock sort of symbolizes with, with its many crevices. There's also sort of a native versus civilization mm-hmm. tension happening here, uh, like in The Rock itself, which I think and I, I didn't do enough enough research to to speak to this, uh, you know, definitively. But I I, I gather has uh, significance to Australia's in, indigenous populations, you know. So I think that's sort of just another thematic idea, you know, the uh, between again civilization and quote unquote primitive populations, but also indigenous populations and, and colonizers are all kind of wrapped up in this giant rock. Yeah, and I, th- and I think in both films there there are tensions and there are consequences uh, to defying nature, to re- resisting it. I mean, it, you know, I mean, uh, you know, Apple Yard College and and the the clothes that they were supposed to that they wear, the, the you know, the baggage that they bring out to this rock and that air of you know Victorian repression that is kind of at issue with the film, you know, runs so contrary to this place which is wild and you know mesmeric and causes behavior that is irrational but also impulsive and freeing kind of uh you know and i think you look at something like the dry i mean climate change isn't mentioned but you can feel it in the transformation of the town this is a town Mm -hmm. that has been transformed by death and that that and that death is reflected in the way the characters act in the feel of the town and of course in the actual literal landscape of the town which once was full of water and and forest and and now we see it and wheat. as <laughs> and wheat right, fields and wheat fields which and now it's not can't be farmed and they're desperate for a rain that hasn't come and doesn't appear to be coming anytime soon and that defiance of nature has very severe consequences for the the overall health of the town. And the repression has stuck around too. We certainly get it with the uh, two gay characters who can't be out or feel they can't be out. Oh, right. Yeah. We have some non-white characters that with very various degrees of explicitness talk about feeling like outsiders or, or how, you know, not everyone's inclusive uh, of them there as, as well. So, you know, 120 years on, maybe the, the land has been quote unquote tamed, uh, but we're not, you know, we're not seeing anything sort of glorious benefits of that are, are, are perhaps not as evident in terms of people's happiness. Yeah. For sure. And, you know, and, 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 you know, one other thing, I think one important thing that these films share is kind of the reshaping of communities after loss because, you know, the disappearance of these girls and this teacher uh, at Hanging Rock and then the death of this 
girl in the flashbacks of the dry and then and then that this family in the present day part of the dry have a profound impact on the community that that i think both filmmakers do a pretty good job of conveying to us i mean that these you know i mean we can see um how fraught things are at the college and picnic at hanging rock after the girls disappear Uh, i mean you know parents start to remove their children from the school the school itself is seems is on the wane mrs appleyard is going crazy um her um, hair is coming out of its style there there's far yeah. there's like so, when she's drinking and there's some wisps it's like oh no i know that's, I know. that's it's, not it's good trouble you know and then, you know uh, uh you know irma's getting attacked uh for yeah. for not being able to say what happened and everyone is going to going a little bit crazy because this well-ordered world that they you know an unnatural world that they've been a part of is starting to fall apart and then in the the, the dry the community that Aaron is returns to is not the same one as he was lived in before. I mean, the one when, you know, he was a teenager, he seemed, it seemed very carefree, right? A a good place to live. He was kind of, you know, he was doing what teenagers do, uh, you know, hanging out and getting in love, love uh, quadrangles. And, and, uh, (laughs) and the one he returns to has been so hit by hardship has been, has been hit by this, inexplicably awful crime and then all on top of that you know there's also the lingering memory of this girl who had who had been lost her life 20 plus years earlier and and you just feel like you know when aaron arrives like he's has to be taken aback by just the rot (laughs) that has kind of taken place and by the hostility of the townspeople and the the sense of the this town just being drastically on the wane yeah. And the dry doesn't make this suggestion, but I think just in terms of sort of the timing of events, you can sort of loosely tie Ellie's death to sort of the the beginning of the the town's downfall, you know, mm-hmm. like as as previously mentioned, the you know, the flashbacks are are lush and green and uh the present day is not and ellie's death is sort of the the, division point between those two so again the film is not sort of suggesting that her dying is what led this farming community to sort of die out but just the way the timelines kind of line up there it creates that sense that like this was a formative tragedy for this community and it has never managed to come out of it it has spiraled because of it not just on like the level of the individual in that community but the shape of the the town and the landscape itself you know it's like a deep scar for sure and it's and and it's so its existence is so at this point tenuous i mean it is it to the point where it's like if the guy who did it (laughs) lights a match or whatever or if that part of you know if he follows through on that threat it's a widespread disaster. It's a, it, it, that's just a, that's just a town that's like right on the precipice. And I think it's worth noting that the the guy who done it, or one of the guys who who done it, is is an outsider, and mm-hmm. one of the guys who done it 
is a longtime resident of the community, you know, but sort of this, this modern day crime was one that was perpetrated by someone who who came to the community and uh, sort of brought his own issues with him and exploited it, you know, this, this he embezzled money from from the school, you know, it doesn't get more exploitative than that, you know. So you have this sort of modern day betrayal of of the town, but then there's also this more like personal betrayal in in the past that feels like it kind of like rippled out on a more morality level, you know, if, if that makes sense, you know, like there is a, is a, a little bit of an original sin feel to to Ellie's death that kind of comes full circle uh, with the arrival of this outsider who perpetrates this terrible crime on the community. And that's, I mean, really that first death brings it in line with Picnic and Hanging Rock because it is a maddening open question as to what happened to this girl, you know, Mm -hmm. and having a question like that hanging over people, hanging over community changes people and drives them a little bit crazy too. And so does the... uh the presumed answer to that mystery, you know, like to go back to our connection on, on, on mystery and answers, like a lot of people in the town, most people in the town, it seems like have kind of accepted the idea that Aaron is responsible. And, you know, that this, this mystery has an answer. It's not a mystery, but that, you know, we can again, see through the way this town has, has sort of evolved that there hasn't, there's not actually closure there. That answer did not create any closure. And I think that is maybe, be uh, speaking to the fact that it is not the actual answer to the mystery. No. With Aaron here and, and to some degree Irma and Pitek and Hanging Rock, the, you know, both films have a scapegoat and, and we see them you know, treated quite abusively. Um, mm, yeah. Although Aaron, Aaron is not responsible and, and Irma, I'm going to guess that, you know, we can't say definitively as with <laughs> most things about Pitek and Hanging Rock, it's hard to say anything definitively. Yeah. She was not leading though. Mir- Miranda was was the leader. So... You know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can judge these uh, uh, mysteries for yourselves by uh, streaming Picnic and Hanging Rock on Criterion Channel and HBO Max. It's also available to rent through all major streaming services. It's on Criterion DVD and Blu-ray. Uh, the Dry is in theaters, and it can be rented for a reasonable price on the relevant streaming services. Uh, we'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we recommend, especially in this age of widely available digital media that we all need to catch up on. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith Phipps, what in the film world has been good for you? I make a very tenuous connection here in that this is a... um uh, that this is a, is a genre film, I guess. <laughs> Maybe is only connection we have. There's a little bit of a of, a, of the wilderness in it as well. I was doing an article a little while back for GQ about about films that were we kind of released to theaters during the pandemic that you might have missed. And there was a film that got some attention, but not that much, uh, called Let Him Go, uh, directed by Thomas Bazooka, which is a story 
a revenge of of, of sorts uh, in a way. Not really, though. It it, it is. Um, well, I'll just tell, tell you the plot. Here's the deal. Uh, it's set in in in, uh, in 1950s or 60s uh, Montana, uh, where a retired sheriff uh, played by Kevin Costner and and leads a, a very uh, nice wi- uh, life with his uh, wife uh, Diane Lane. It's Ma and Paul Kent together again with their son and daughter-in-law until the son dies in an accident. That's no that's no spoiler. It's the opening scene. Uh, at which point the daughter-in-law remarries uh, an abusive uh, fellow and then suddenly disappears. So the film is about them going to search for their daughter-in-law and uh, grandchild. So it's 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 kind of a um, there's there's a, there's a sort of a mystery element to it. But it's more they once they do find the family where they're with it's, it's a eccentric kind of mean spirited uh, family headed by Leslie Manville in a very uh, Vivid performance, Leslie Manville, you know, from uh, the Phantom Menace, uh, Phantom Menace, <laughs> Leslie Manville. You, um, now that I would see. Yeah, exactly. Leslie Manville, you know, from from uh, the Phantom Thread uh, and, and Jeffrey Donovan, who is a, a was a star of Burn Notice, but he's also when he turns up as a either as a creep or an eccentric supporting character, it's usually worth paying attention. Uh, it's a it's a pretty gripping genre film, but also a nice sort of later life love story between uh, Costner and, and Lane's characters. It's it's beautifully photographed. It's got a nice score by Michael Giacano. Uh, it's it, it, it. I think it kind of went largely unnoticed unless you were going to movie theaters last fall. Um, but it is uh, very much worth your time. Um, I, I found it quite quite striking and quite gripping. And uh, and I do like Costner and Lane uh, quite a bit uh, in this film. So is it the best film of last year? No, but it's, it's a really solid one that I, that if you missed, you might want to catch up on. It, it's uh, I think still just available for renting through various uh, streaming services. Regular or PVOD, Keith? Um, uh, it's, oh, I think it's you can get it for the usual price you would pay to rent something on, okay, uh, not on the, VOD not 20 at bucks. this point. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, good. Uh, okay. uh, like the dry is like seven bucks. No yeah, problem. exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a seven bucker. I'd say you're going to get seven bucks worth of entertainment and, and maybe a little bit more out of this one. Uh, Genevieve, how about you? Uh, well, yeah, I'm going to recommend something that is actually uh, a kind of uh, similarly uh, connected to uh, to this pairing, and that it is a sort of well executed uh, genre film, and and I and also kind of related to to your pick, Keith, and that it is a film that came out uh, last year in the middle of the pandemic and kind of went a little uh, unnoticed. I'm uh, talking about the film Greenland, which uh, was, I think, one of the the first films uh, to kind of announce that it was skipping theaters in- entirely and going to a, a streaming-only model. Having seen it now and, and enjoying it, I can kind of appreciate what a, uh, a sacrifice that was on, on the film's part, because this definitely feels like a, a theatrical film. It feels like a summer th- uh, theatrical film, and that is because it is a, it's a disaster movie. It's, a, it's an end-of-the-world apocalypse uh, movie, and that is just a form that I, I both tend to associate with the, the summer blockbuster season. Uh, it's a form that I, I enjoy uh, in, in general, while also recognizing that most films in this genre are, are pretty terrible. <laughs> um, but I, I, I don't think Greenland is. I think it is. It is uh, quite good, actually. It, it stars Gerard Butler and Marina Baccarin as as parents, who uh, you know, as as the film begins, are like everyone else on on the planet, uh, realizing that a uh, comet storm is about to just more or less obliterate Earth. But they have been selected to be sort of sort of extracted to a, a, a safe shelter that you know you could probably guess from the title of the film uh, where it is, but we don't really get details about it until until much later in the film. 
you know, and it kind of proceeds as you would expect a film like this too. you know, like obviously their journey to the the meeting point where, where they need to be to to get to this place doesn't turn out as, as it needs to and things go wrong. What I like about this film is that, you know, things go wrong and things go right kind of in, in equal measure. And like, there's an sort of an equal balance of people being terrible in the scenario and people being good and humane in the scenario. And for the most part, every choice that is made in this film, every interaction that is uh, that happens in this film feels like real and human. You know, it doesn't feel like it was written to move the plot along. So I think that makes for sort of a very effective unraveling of society to see people both, you know, acting in their own self-interest and also in the interest of saving humanity. And it just kind of creates a really nice flow to the film. And when I say flow, I mean like just a constant state of tension throughout. Like like you I was just like wound so tight through this whole movie. It's like really well executed suspense. And I think the reason for that is because it does succeed on this very human level. Um, I'm not like a Gerard Butler Stan. I've, I've never really connected to him in a movie the way I have here. And Marina Baccarin as well is an actress that I, I really love and is frequently kind of given short shrift in films, looking at you, Deadpool. Um, so it's kind of nice to see her get some really strong moments here, even if she is kind of in a, a secondary role. But yeah, I really, this was like a really enjoyable film that kind of made me, again, wish I was in a movie theater munching popcorn and tearing my hair out because, you know, as opposed to being at home where I can like get up and walk around because I'm so nervous, you know, like being in that really tense space for two hours is a a movie going experience that I, I actually kind of relish, even as I hate it as I'm going through it. Maybe this is why people like horror movies. I'm, I'm projecting <laughs> on, on to it a different genre here. But yeah, it was very satisfying in that regard. So like I said, it was released uh, VOD at the end of last year, I think December, Um, but it is now available for free for HBO Max subscribers. Mm. So if you haven't checked out Greenland yet, I would would give it a shot. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Yeah, you know, both of those films kind of, I'd heard that both of those were Good and I, that kind of happened a lot during the pandemic year. Of just for some reason, for some reason, if a film wasn't with theaters closed, the fact that a lot of these films were even good films were more available somehow made <laughs> made it less urgent <laughs> for me to try to see them or or want to kind of go out and watch. But but um, but uh, both of these sound really really interesting. All right, uh, Scott, what about you? Uh, well, I, I, can, I guess I could connect up to to Keith because because uh, my movie has Diane Lane in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had occasion to revisit the Walter Hill film Streets of Fire, uh, which is on Netflix in June. One of the few catalog titles in Netflix this month that are worth uh, anything. <laughs> it's getting really bad with with Netflix and catalog titles these days. But Walter Hill is one of my is a favorite. Uh, director and he was on i think one of the all-time great hot streaks leading up to streets of fire he had done the driver he had done the warriors he'd done 48 hours southern comfort the long riders i mean these are all in a row you know he was well not in the order i just said but but he'd made all these these big 
movies and then he kind of decided to spend house money on a, a neo-noir musical <laughs> called <laughs> streets of fire which is just like you just know <laughs> by that description neo-noir musical uh that it was going to be a bomb and of course that's what it, that's what it was and then it kind of sent hill into a bit of a cold streak afterwards and uh, i'm not going to make the argument that streets of fire is anywhere near as good as the films leading up to it but i think i kind of underrated it watching it again this time and i think there's a lot of appreciable qualities to it and and uteness to it that that make it uh, worth revisiting um this is a film that is set in an era that is in 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 another time in another place I think is with the way the titles go, that is suggestive of kind of a mix of the 50s and the 80s. And, uh, and it's about uh, uh, Diane Lane is a singer who gets kidnapped by a uh, gang led by a, a very young Willem Dafoe. And uh, the singer's ex-boyfriend, who's sort of the center of the film, um, Michael Perret, he, you know, kind of reluctantly you know joins her manager played by rick moranis and and uh and uh amy madigan who's kind of a tough ex-soldier uh to try to to try to track her her down and there's kind of gang wars etc but it's a very interesting movie it's it's um because it looks really great it's got that walter hill action in it and look to it so it's it's still very hard-hitting there's a lot of you know fights and explosions and people like getting thrown through windows but then it also has a lot of music in it music that i is you know a collapsing of errors a collapsing of those two errors of the of the of the 50s and 80s maybe more the 80s than the 50s but it moves to a a very distinct and propulsive beat and it kind of got me thinking about francis ford coppola's one from the heart which is also kind of like ending a hot streak with a very expensive but singular failure and it's just kind of worth returning to those movies just even if they're flawed and frustrating in certain ways you know there's really nothing like it i mean what what was like streets of fire keith nothing no and and i i didn't catch i didn't see it until uh, maybe a few years you know a few beers back and it's like this was this was made, <laughs> you know, this was, yeah. if it was made, Joel Silver was the producer, you know, this yeah. was like, some, I think they really legitimately thought they were making a hit. Yeah. I think so too. I mean, there's a lot of, of money and energy put, put into this and, and, uh, it did have one hit song from the soundtrack, which is, I can, I can dream about you by, by Dan Hartman, which is still playing somewhere on a radio station somewhere played eighties music. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, it's all kinds of, just all kind of weirdness. I mean, it looks great and it's a good Chicago film, even though it's not explicitly set in Chicago. There's lots of scenes shot in Chicago, but I mean, it just the cast is incredible. It's deep. You know, you, you have people like, Robert Townsend and, and Lee Ving is in it. But, but um, you know, who do you hire to play like a, a kind of threatening creep? Who's like on your short list? Uh, uh, it's, it, would it be, would, would, is Rick Moranis on there anywhere, uh, Scott? You know? <laughs> but he's, he's good in this film though. I mean, it's, 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 yeah. it's, just, it's, it's I mean, a very. The problem is, Mike, is that the lead is bad. You know, Michael Perret? Yeah. I mean, that makes a big mm. difference because you think about the leads in those earlier walter hill yeah movies he's Um, okay i I don't think he's bad but but yeah he's not he's not he's not a nick nolte type or something you know Um, maybe better kurt russell like put put somebody like that in there and i think it's i think it's probably still a huge flop but 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 it's, uh, it's slightly better uh but, but you it, know, it is it is uh i mean it really is 
at a, at a different budget level, it would be like some sort of cult film you, you'd hear about uh, and, you know, whispered about in, in, in reverent tones. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I said it's a big studio flop that I think I think has only really been rediscovered since I think Shout Factory put it on, out on Blu-ray. I think that was part of its rediscovery. Well, I'm sure it's had a cult following. I think, I think there are some people who have, who have a lot of affection for it. And, and if, yeah. if you want to try, if you haven't seen it, it's just sitting there. And it's on Netflix now. People have yeah. Netflix. Uh, so I would check it out there. And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will drop June 22nd and June 29th. Genevieve, what do we have on tap? The new movie In the Heights, a big screen adaptation of Lin-Manuel Miranda and Chiara Alegria Hudes's Tony-winning musical, brings song and dance to the streets of one of New York City's most vibrant neighborhoods. At its center is a dreamer, a young bodega owner who saves every penny, pines for the girl at a neighboring beauty salon, and longs to return to the Dominican Republic, where he hopes to restore his father's business. It's impossible to watch In the Heights without thinking of another Broadway adaptation, 1961's West Side Story, which brought Stephen Sondheim and Leonard Bernstein's classic to a massive 70mm canvas. A gangland twist on Romeo and Juliet, West Side Story is also about dreamers confined to a New York City neighborhood, and the possibilities and limitations of being an American. For our next set of episodes, we invite you to the island Manhattan. So smoke on your pipe and put that in. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Picnic and Hanging Rock, The Dry, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve Koski. I am the uh, TV editor at Vulture, which keeps me too busy and frazzled <laughs> to tweet much. But uh, on the uh, rare occasion I do, I am uh, on Twitter at Genevieve Koski. Keith? Uh, I'm a freelance writer. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at KFIPS3000, where I link to pieces at places like uh, well, Vulture and, and, and GQ and TV Guide and uh, occasionally sometimes The Ringer, sometimes Polygon. All kinds of places that, that, that like to employ me or, 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 or tolerate me and pay me money sometimes for, uh, for, for what I write. Scott, how about you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, you can find my work in uh, the New York Times, uh, The Guardian, uh, Vulture, The Ringer, and other fine publications. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. They hate to call it a blog, but whatever, it's a blog. Our uh, absent uh, co-host, Tasha Robinson, you can find her on Twitter at at Tasha Robinson, and uh, she is the film and TV editor at Polygon. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net and via Twitter at nextpicturepod. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. And please also consider rating and reviewing us, which will help others find your favorite movie podcast, which is us. We're your favorite movie <laughs> podcast, not some other movie. Okay. Uh, thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Sometimes when this place feels kind of empty And all of the birthdays are the line, I think about the loveless fascination 
Under the Milky Way tonight Wish I knew what you were looking for Might have known what you would find And it's something quite peculiar Under the Milky Way tonight